Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, fellow time travelers. It's me again. We're here again together, traveling through time and space. Certainly through time. Uh, before we get started, I, I, I always like to say thanks to everyone who's signed up to my Patreon site. It's the Patreon presence that makes possible everything else that Paul and I do together. Uh, everything else is and always will be free, uh, and that's viable because of the Patreon site. So, if you haven't done so already and you'd like to, go to patreon.com search for me by name, Neil Oliver, and follow the instructions, and you part with a bit of cash, uh, either monthly or for the year, and if you join up for the year all at once, it's a little bit cheaper, Um, and you become part of the family. Uh, You get uh, two exclusive vodcasts every week, we do quizzes from time to time, with prizes, signed books, that kind of thing, we do uh, question and answers, um, but I think as much as anything else, perhaps it matters most to become part of a community of, of like-minded, free-thinking, curious types, people with questions, uh, because as well as addressing questions to me, uh, there are conversations that go on uh, amongst the other members of the family. So that's a that's got to be a, a, a positive addition to the world, I think. Okay, it's now time to strap ourselves, yourselves, into the time machine as we set off on another episode of my love letter to the world. Recorder, microphone, action. It can be on our terms. We can continue to be ourselves and know what's true and know what's right and know what matters right up until the moment when our eyes close for the last time. They can't take that away. No matter what else they do, they can't make us submit and they cannot force our consent. Living through great change, upheaval and revolution is a constant theme in the story of the world. In many ways it is the story of the world. As new ideas and leaders emerge, the choice between submitting or resisting, between kneeling or standing is one of the oldest stories, one of the oldest challenges. Whether it's by coercion or threat, force, whatever power is facing us, we always have the power to withhold our consent. Endeavouring to understand history in hopes of illuminating the future. I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the world. Hi Neil, in the last episode we crossed the Rubicon River with Julius Caesar and after a bloody military campaign swept into Rome. Where are we this week? Hello again Paul. Well this week uh, it's a bit of an interruption to normal circumstances. Uh, So far the format of this series has been 
strictly chronological. Uh, we began our journey around 4,300 years ago when the concept of the written word was first being conjured into being. Uh, last week, uh, we got as far as 49 years BC, before the birth of Christ, when one Julius Caesar rolled the dice and changed Rome forever. But this week, as I say, we're doing something different. We're contemplating a moment in history that almost stands outside time. We're in Auschwitz when Steinlauf met Primo Levi. Although we've been dotting around the world, we've been coming further and further forward in time, approaching the present. Well, in this one we step out. Funnily enough, this happened to me before uh, with the story of the British Isles in A Hundred Places. Uh, the Fortingall U, the story about the tree in Glen Lyon in the heart of Scotland, was out of time as well. Uh, it didn't. It didn't naturally or easily fit the chronology, but for me, the Fortingall U was timeless in that its story was of such significance to me that it reverberated back and forward across time, and so I, I located it. I placed it where it seemed to me to make sense. So to do. This episode, well, it's about Primo Levi. Uh, obviously, it's a familiar name to, to most people, even if they might struggle a little bit to remember or, or to describe exactly who he was. Primo Levi was an Italian Jewish, so that, you know, those two mixtures of those two heritages. He was Italian, but he was also of Jewish descent. Uh, and he was a scientist, he was a chemist. And his time was well. He was he was he was a young man uh, during the Second World War, and, and so we'll get to him because, in, in some respect, the moment is about him. But more particularly, it's about somebody that Primo Levi met in Auschwitz, the death camp, where Levi was held during the time of the of the Holocaust. So we'll get to both of them uh, momentarily. We spoke last time about Julius Caesar crossing the Rubicon, which is the river in northeastern Italy that he crossed on the way to, back to Rome after his after his years in Gaul, which is France. In crossing the Rubicon, with still in command of his army, he broke the rules of the Roman Empire. He should have surrendered his command and and, and and come into a bit like hanging up your your guns at the you know in tombstone you know they weren't allowed guns inside the town boundaries of, of tombstone well he, he didn't he, he kept his army with him and he changed the republic forever he changed the republic into an empire basically and we we spoke in in the context of of Caesar about how cyclically there are times when a generation of a civilization treats with contempt really on account of laziness and disinterest treats with contempt that which it has had the benefits the rights the freedoms the luxuries are taken for granted and when something's taken for granted for long enough eventually it's treated with contempt as though it's not worth having in the first place 
and it's cyclical in as much as when that moment comes the world of the present or the world of before ends and then there might be a period of chaos and then there's another world, a new world, a new normal emerges. It's also worth saying in this context that there's a truism that the world is changed by unreasonable people, which is to say that reasonable people put up with whatever's happening. They just keep their heads down, accept the status quo, uh, they're tolerant of change as it comes along. They're reasonable. Unreasonable people, for whatever reason, decide or realise for themselves that the world is not the way they want it. They're uncomfortable. It's like a, it's like an itch or a wrinkle in the bed sheets. They just can't put up with it. And so it's unreasonable people who set out sometimes to change the world in which they find themselves and, and, and to remake it in their own image. And Caesar was one of those. Uh, Caesar decided that the way things were didn't suit him. <laughs> so all on his own, just one man. Uh, he, he set out to have it fit his idea of what was more appropriate. And there are always people like that. It has to be said, they're mostly men who change the world in that way. I don't think there's any denying it. We've already had the story of King Hammurabi, the law giver, the one who carved the, the law as he understood it into a great black stone stell. And he thereby made the, the law visible to all the people of his domain. Darius and Darius and the Xerxes of Persia, uh, you know, were more of the same. Uh, Cyrus the Great, another one, just decided to change, decided to change the world and make it the way that he wanted it to be. Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, again, couldn't put up with the way things were. And you get, you get other characters as well that we've mentioned, quite different, but in in their own quiet way, promote. If not change, then a, a different perspective. So Lao Tzu of the Tao Te Ching, the Tao Virtue Book, uh, and Buddha, the Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, they arrived at a different understanding of the universe, of the cosmos, of lived reality, and set out to uh, encourage people to see everything differently. So as you could say in their own ways, they didn't accept the status quo and endeavoured in their own way to, to do things differently. In many ways, this, this is the story of the world. There are periods of stability, and then the stability is either treated with contempt or, or, or at the same time as being treated with contempt by too many people. It encourages the activities of these unreasonable individuals. Who, who take that time of, of contempt and discontent and, and exhaustion with the status quo, they, they take it as a, as, a, as a moment, their moment in which to move and, and put a different spin on the, on the world in a way that suits them. And yet, it's also worth noticing that sometimes moments of great significance are the work of forgotten men and women. Sometimes 
some of the most significant impacts and, 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 and effects are conjured into being by little people. I don't mean hobbits. I mean, I mean people who are largely forgotten by history or completely forgotten by history. There's a great... The, the end of um, uh, Middlemarch by George Eliot. The last lines are... For the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts and that things are not so ill for you and me as they might be is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. And I, I, I've, I've memorised that. I memorised that long ago because there's something very significant about it, I would say. The, the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. So we're going to consider really unvisited tombs in this moment in the story of the world so now we arrive back at, at Primo Levi he was a chemist he was a, sign, a man of scientific bent but World War II consumed his world and he joined partisan fighters kind of you know renegade unofficial unregulated fighters who took on the Nazis the German Nazis in the northern part of, of Italy so there he was, he was a partisan and as is often the case with uh, partisan groups fighting guerrilla warfare against you know, better organised entities like the, like the Nazi war machine he was captured along with others and well, he was taken eventually to, because he was Jewish he was taken to the, to the death camp in Auschwitz He survived. I mean, that's not a spoiler. Uh, Primo Levi survived his time in Auschwitz, obviously, and after the war, he resumed his life. He, he came back to the world, if you like. He came back to to a version of the world of before and worked as a chemist, and he wrote a lot of books. He wrote books about all sorts of things. In particular, he wrote about his time in Auschwitz, and he also wrote about his his rehabilitation, I suppose you might call it. The, f- the first of the books was Sequesto e un uomo, a bit of butchered pronunciation there. It means if this is a man, if this is a man. And then the the, the second volume, which, which detailed what happened to him after he got out of the camp, is called The Truce. And if this is a man was published in 1958, that's how long it took. And Philip Roth, a significant man of letters, went on to describe it as one of the 20th century's most necessary books and there's probably a, a case to be made for its having been the most necessary book of the 20th century there's lots of other contenders but you know you could definitely put if this is a man right up there in the top spot as i said this moment that i'm talking about that, that preoccupies me is it's out of time by thousands of years really Last time we left uh, Caesar crossing the Rubicon, and now here we are considering an Italian Jewish chemist who, who, who experiences and then survives the Holocaust. Uh, but I think, as I said, that there are, there are moments that fit nowhere and everywhere and anywhere. They resonate in so many ways. They function, I don't know, like like skeleton keys that open every lock, or a, a Rosetta Stone that enables you to understand that which was previously incomprehensible. And I would say that Primo Levi's wisdom, and I don't think he would have called it wisdom, but 
it, it reads like wisdom, what he learned about himself and about humanity in, in Auschwitz, uh, it matters profoundly. And when the Nazis, when the Third Reich embarked on doing away with the Jewish population of Europe, and eventually they would have done away with the Jewish population of planet Earth, every man, woman and child was to be killed. But it wasn't enough for them. The Nazis also set about dehumanising the victims before and after death. Before they died, each Jewish man, woman and child was, was to be made to believe that they were lesser, that they didn't belong alive in the world. And so everything about the death camps that the Nazis created was about breaking human spirit in the living, even before going through the, the mechanised, industrialised murder. It was about having them submit while they were still alive, understanding that they didn't deserve to live. And it, you know, they were like, they were being hollowed out. They were being, I don't know, like, like an apple corer takes out the middle of an apple and leaves something else behind, or a gutted fish, that, so that nothing was to be left behind but the outer shell that was that bit easier to throw into the ovens and have consumed by the flames. So that was the hell on earth that Levy found himself within in Auschwitz. And within, I don't know, a week even of arrival and experiencing and realising where he has arrived, he's stopped uh, even washing. He's given up on, on the idea of basic hygiene. Because, as he describes it, every day they're kind of they're herded, shed by shed, uh, barracks by barracks, into this foul washroom, which is just a brick shell of a thing, with an obscenely foul floor covered in every kind of filth you can imagine. Um, water, when there was water in in, this, in the wash hand basins and the sinks, was foul smelling, coming from God only knew where. And so it, it, it seemed to him, he says, the more I think about it, the more washing one's face in our condition seemed a stupid feat, even frivolous, a mechanical habit, or worse, a dismal recreation of an extinct rite. Um, and so he, he decided that the, that the time that wash time was best ignored, really, and he, or he would just walk through the washroom and then spend the time just thinking or looking up at the sky or trying to distract himself. But he didn't see any, any point in going through the, the motions of, of washing. How could you get washed? There was no soap. The water was cold. It was foul. Nothing. What was the point? And then at the end of his first week, there or thereabouts, he, what are the chances? He encountered an old friend. He, he met someone from the world of before who was a man about a generation older than him, a man in his 50s, and he was a soldier. He had been a soldier of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, part of the old world of before World War II, really, called Steinlauf. And he had been a sergeant fighting in World War I, and he had been decorated. He, had, he was a bearer of the Iron Cross for valour. But anyway, he, like Levy, had ended up had ended up in Auschwitz, where he was to be consigned to the fire. And so Levy watched him. He, Levy realised, he recognised Steinlauf before Steinlauf saw him. So Levy uh, stood back and watched the older man. 
and he, he took off his, uh, the older man, Steinleff took off his jacket. He's like, you know, those striped pyjama things. He took off his jacket and he folded it neatly and, and put it between his knees so that it wasn't on the ground. And then he, he, he bent over the, the, t- the sink and ran the water and vigorously, without soap or anything else, went through the ritual of washing himself, washing his face, washing his armpits, washing his, the top half of his body. He, he went through his ablutions. And uh, when, he was, when he had done enough of it, he, he took the jacket from between his knees and he dried himself. He used that as a towel because there were no towels. And then this filthy item, now wet, he put on and he buttoned it up again. And it was as he was buttoning up the jacket that he turned and the two men made eye contact with one another. And Steinleff, having you know, said hello, said to Levy quite sternly, why aren't you washing? Why aren't you doing this? And Levy said, well, pff, what's the point? I've just watched you doing it. It's a waste of time. It's foul water. There's, 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 no, there's no point. And Steinleff said absolutely on the contrary. He said, here... In these circumstances, above any other circumstances, is when you must wash. Because Steinleif had already been there longer than Levy, and he had already intuited that the, the death camp, apart from a place for killing people, was a place to dehumanise the living and to turn them into animals before they died. And Steinleif had realised this. And he said, the one thing that we have as the naked individuals that we are, about to be crushed under the boot of that powerful machine that is above us, we don't have to consent. We don't have to consent. So in his own way, in his own tiny, almost invisible, almost lost to history way, Steinleif was supposed to drop his shoulders, lower his head and admit that he was next to nothing. But he was refusing, with his last energy in his body, he was refusing to submit and he was withholding his consent. Levy was Italian, spoke Italian as his first language. Steinleif spoke a version of German and it meant that Levy afterwards, he couldn't exactly recall, he couldn't recall word for word what Steinleif had said to him. But Levy got the gist of it. And as well as withholding consent, Steinleif said, some of us have to survive. Someone has to survive to bear witness, to tell the story. We can't all disappear and, and the truth of what has happened here be lost. We must not permit that either. And Steinleif is just a, he's a, a, an ex-sergeant, a, a, a soldier. He was being held captive in the worst place on earth, possibly the worst place imaginable, and he would not let those who had him in their thrall make an animal of him before killing him. They could kill him, but he would not become, and he would not see himself as they wanted him to see himself. And so he's a small figure, like a tiny spark of light in the darkness but that spark of light in that darkness made the difference it, it's infinitesimal but it, it mattered in a profound sense and Levy later, you know the book wasn't published till 1958 but he rendered as, as best as he could what, what Steinleif had said to him and it, it's 
To survive, we must force ourselves to save at least the skeleton, the scaffolding, the form of civilization. We are slaves, deprived of every right, exposed to every insult, condemned to certain death. But we still possess one power, and we must defend it with all our strength, for it is the last, the power to refuse our consent. What Steinleff had said to Levy stayed with him forever. He admitted that he struggled ever after with with whether or not he thought Steinleff was right. But nonetheless, he didn't forget it. And what matters, why this is a timeless and immortal moment in the story of the world, possibly the most important, was that this soldier of the Great War would not submit, even in the face of overwhelming odds. And for most people would rightly think, what is the point? I can't win here. And maybe he couldn't win, but he wouldn't stop being Steinlauf until Steinlauf was no more. His intention was to remain and to retain himself until such times as he was no more. And if part of that meant stripping off in a foul washroom and washing in cold, fouled water and drying himself with his own clothes before putting them on and going out to greet the rest of his day, then that's what he would do because he was intent on maintaining the scaffolding of civilization. You know, we've talked a lot about civilization in the story of the world. Well, he was carrying civilization as a thought in his head and he wouldn't surrender it. He knew what civilized was. At a fundamental level, he understood what it was to be a civilised man and he would not be stripped of it, no matter what else was taken from him. And I think that's I think there's something profound about that. Levy's gone now. Uh, you know, he went on and he, he lived a, a life. Steinlauf is, is gone. And nonetheless, you have to remember that there have always been and there will always be those who are determined to to win submission from others. Hammurabi, Xerxes, uh, Darius, Cyrus the Great, you know, these characters, they want people to kneel down in front of them. But there are also always small people. I don't mean small, I mean people, I don't mean, in, in in some senses they're the greatest people of all. But although history largely forgets them, for as long as they're here, they retain a sense of who and what they are. And if our species dies out, if our civilization is overwhelmed once and for all, and there are no Homo sapiens left in the world, that someone like Steinlauf existed at all and made that stand will mean that it was worth while human beings having existed in the universe because he understood and lived out what it was to be human and alive and it's it's profound that determination to to refuse to submit to withhold consent it's a sad little footnote really but Levy I think he lived in Turin and at the end of his life and he was found dead at, at, at the bottom of the, he lived in a flat on the third floor of a block of flats and he was found dead at the, at the foot of the stairwell um, and he'd, he'd, he'd fallen. But the coroner concluded that it was suicide. 
and there's a, a and he had and he had lived years. He lived he lived he lived for decades after surviving the camps, but it would appear that for whatever reason he chose to end his life that way. And in fact, another Auschwitz survival, Elie Wiesel, said afterwards, Primo Levi died in Auschwitz 40 years later. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But to me, there's something fundamental and essential about what Primo Levi learned from Steinlauf in Auschwitz, which to me means that in some respects, it might be the most significant story. It might be the most significant moment in the story of the world. Do you think it's a universal message, you know, that despite the profound sadness and horror of it all, that it shows we can all make a difference? You know, everybody's got the opportunity to make a difference. I think it's I think it's one of them I think it carries with it one of the most profound lessons of all uh, which is I mean we've we've touched on it multiple times a lot of the lessons that are embedded in the stories that have lasted longest are about the eternal truths these stories last because they have fossilized within them something that everyone in each successive generation realises matters. That's why the stories keep getting passed on. And In the case of Primo Levi and Steinlauf at Auschwitz, it's almost a reminder that we're all going to die sooner or later. We all owe a death. And, you know, we've done stories you and I, about all, about all sorts of ways in which we are reminded of the inevitability of that. And ultimately you either curl up in a ball of defeated depression at the thought of that, or you take the only other option, which is to stand up and do as much as you can and be as much of a positive impact on the world, on the fabric of reality, as you possibly can. You know, you, you, you carry your burden, the heaviest burden that you can pick up, and you carry it as far as you can for as long as you can. And that's it. And you might say, well, it doesn't matter because you're going you're gonna to die anyway. Which is true, but what are you going to do while you're here? Are you going to just cower in the face of the inevitable or are you going to stand up in defiance of it and that's what Steinlauf was encouraging Primo Levi to do yeah for sure Primo we're going to die we might die in here but it can be on our terms we can continue to be ourselves and know what's true and know what's right and know what matters right up until the moment when our eyes close for the last time they can't take that away no matter what else they do, they can't make us submit and they cannot force our consent. We can withhold our consent. It's a profound message. Kneel down or stand up. A small fellowship of Jews watched their leader die on a wooden cross. 
They believed he came back to life three days later, and their claim went on to form the foundation of a religion that outlived the all-powerful Roman Empire, which lasted to the present day and changed the world in every conceivable way. Next time in my love letter to the world... To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment vodcasts every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. Be great to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. My YouTube channel is simply called The Neil Oliver Channel. And to help build this podcast, tell your friends about it, get them listening, and write a review to convince the online crowd to join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments, and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Catnip Inc. Music is composed by Milo McKinnon. Social media and YouTube producer is Oscar, CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios. The graphics are by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been a Catnip Inc. Podcasts production.